This morning's scripture passage is found in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, now the man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings and he was a Calebite, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origins I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you gird on your sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Thanks, David. Good morning. Marriage is challenging. I know that's a surprise to some of you, right? In every marriage, we find it challenging to blend two sinners' lives together because we all bring our stuff into the marriage. And God is working to blend us together so we can learn to really love Him and love one another in our marriage. But what happens if you're stuck in a really difficult or even terrible marriage what if you're married to someone who is really not walking with God who could be termed even evil and let's broaden it what if you're in any kind of difficult relationship with someone who is perhaps evil they're difficult they treat you poorly is it possible even in those kinds of marriages those kinds of situations to still be a godly man or woman and really trust God in the midst of a difficult, difficult relationship. 
Well, in our passage today, Abigail shows us that it is possible, even in the very worst of situations, worst of relationships, to still be a godly person who trusts God and has a powerful, powerful influence over others. And Abigail shows us a wonderful godly way to confront someone else who's caught in sin. And while this passage will be especially applicable to the women amongst us, the principles apply to all of us men, and we need to hear this too. So let's pray together. Lord, we turn to you recognizing that we do not handle difficult people well. We tend to just want to run away or maybe fight back, hurt them. We either respond in anger or fear. Lord, there's all kinds of ways we respond inappropriately to the difficult relationships we face in life. But we thank you for passages like this that are so real, that deal with the reality and give us models like Abigail, a woman who really trusted you. May we learn today by the power of your spirit, Lord, to respond in godly ways and to be the men and women you've called us to be in the difficult relationships we face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the passage that was just read by David begins this way. Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him in the house of Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. In this section, we learn about two angry men. Two angry men, David and Nabal. And it begins with this death of Samuel. Now remember, Samuel was the great prophet of Israel. He's the one who anointed David as king. He's the one David depended on as the one who would sharpen him and keep him focused on the Lord. And now he's gone. And it appears as we go on in this passage that David is feeling that loss. I think he looked to Samuel for leadership in his life. And now he kind of loses his way a little bit. Maybe you've experienced that when someone you've kind of looked to for leadership, they're somehow taken out of the way and you kind of lose your way as you're trying to figure out, okay, who am I now? What, what am I to be? And then the word get introduced in the next few verses to this couple. Nabal and Abigail begins in verse 2. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. The first thing we learn about this man is that he's rich. He's got a lot of money, but in a moment we'll discover how he got that money. (laughs) As we see his real character, down in verse 3 it says, The man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. Nabal. Interesting that his name was Nabal. Nabal means fool. Now you have to wonder about parents who named their kid fool. Was it just a mocking thing? Some commentators said, well, they couldn't have done that. They couldn't have named him fool. It had to be, you know, something where maybe that just became what he was called by everybody else because that was his character, perhaps. We don't know, but he probably was raised in a difficult home and he reflected it in his life. Fool, the word fool, we have to understand, is not 
Like we tend to think about a fool, like a court jester, someone who's just silly, does silly things. Yeah, that's what a fool. Biblically, when the word fool is used, in particular this one, Nabal, it's a moral term. A fool in the Bible is always one who lives as though God isn't there. The same word is used several places in the scripture, like Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's what a fool is. A person who lives as though God isn't there, as though he doesn't exist. They may verbally say, I believe in God, but they live as though God doesn't even exist. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Eugene Peterson says, the fool is the Bible's most contemptuous term. Then it goes on to say about Nabal, the woman was intelligent, beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. Wow, what a testimony of somebody's reputation, huh? Here's somebody that if you came in contact with Nabal, everything would be hard and cruel and mean, and he was truly evil in how he would deal with you. He would do whatever he could to get your money, to take what you have. This is how he got rich. Selfish, demanding, harsh, cruel. Someone you can't influence. No softness to him at all. And someone who cannot be trusted. He was truly an evil man who rejected God. This is Nabal. And Abigail was married to him. Imagine being married to somebody like this. <laughs> Had to be tough. And who's Abigail? Well, it's interesting to me. It says, first of all, what we learn about her is her name. Her name was Abigail. Abigail means, my father is joy. Now again, I have to wonder about parents. A father who says, well, I want my daughter to never forget I'm the greatest joy in her life. <laughs> so I'm going to name her My Father is Joy. A little strange. So she probably didn't come up in the, most, in the best family situation. In fact, think about it for a minute. Her parents, in those days, every marriage was arranged pretty much. So they arranged for her to marry this fool, Nabal. This evil, harsh man. Poor Abigail. Tough, tough family of origin. Difficult. But notice what it says about her character. It says, she was, the woman was, intelligent and beautiful in appearance. She's raised in a difficult home. She's in a difficult marriage, incredibly difficult marriage. And yet, her character is such that she is intelligent. Now that word, again, doesn't mean just smart, having insight. Again, it's a moral term. It's used throughout the scripture to talk about somebody who understands the big picture, who sees that God is involved in everything that goes on, someone who is truly wise. And out of that, because they see reality for what it is, they make good decisions in their lives. They make good choices. It's used in a number of places in scriptures. This is the only place it's used specifically to describe a woman. 
So Abigail is someone who's especially insightful, sees God's hand at work, has incredible insight into who God is. This is the same word that's used in a number of places, but uh, one place is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 22. Understanding or insight, same word, is a fountain of life to one who has it. But the discipline of fools, like Nabal, is folly. Fools end up in more folly. But someone who has this kind of insight and sees God's hand at work and acts accordingly, like Abigail does, is somebody who's like a fountain of life. Their life just overflows with the life of God. They're depending on Him. They're trusting Him. And others get to drink. They're people of influence. And you think about Abigail. How did she develop that kind of insight and wisdom and beauty in her life of soul? Beauty inside and out. In the midst of a horrible marriage. Well, it's because she trusted God. She feared the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of insight and wisdom. Proverbs 1 tells us. And she did that. She clung to the Lord. She depended on Him. She was had an intimacy with God that carried her through even the most difficult relationships. But think about how hard it had to be to be married to Nabal. How difficult. You can't talk to this guy. You can't have any influence on him. He's, he's hard. He's mean. But notice she did not let it make her bitter. She didn't, like many of us would, just become frustrated and angry and hurt. She stayed close to the Lord. So in verses 5 through 8, then David comes to Nabal and says, Hey, I'd like some hospitality. Now understand, this was a reasonable request. It's part of Middle Eastern culture. If somebody is needy, they can come to someone else and say, Hey, you're at a festive time. Could you just provide some things for my, myself and my men? And we have some evidence that probably David knew Nabal and perhaps they were even related to one another. It says Nabal was a Calebite. The descendants of Caleb founded Bethlehem where David grew up. And where Nabal lives is not far at all from Bethlehem. So it's all in kind of the same general area. David had been a shepherd. He probably knew some of these shepherds, etc. There was a lot of contact here. There's probably, again, there are distant relatives. And so it's very reasonable for David to say, peace be to your house, peace be on you. Everything you have, let there be peace. We protected your men in the wilderness. And could you help us out with a little food? We're hungry. Very reasonable requests to ask for a little hospitality. But Nabal is not reasonable. <laughs> in fact, verses 9 through 11, he insults David in every way, pretty much. He says, I don't even know who this guy is, this son of Jesse. Well, he knows enough to know who his father is, right? <laughs> he's the son of Jesse. He knows him. But he wants to treat him as though he's a nobody. Who is this guy? I don't even care about him. He means nothing to me. There's a lot of masters breaking away, I mean, servants breaking away from their masters. He basically says he's like a rebellious slave, a runaway slave. That's all David is. I am not going to waste anything I have, even my water, 
on this guy. Now, this is a grave insult. And what's David's response? He's had it. He says, you know what? Men, get your swords, 400 of us. We're going to kill all the men. We're going to wipe them out. I've had it. I'm going to kill them all. And his men are just itching for a fight anyway. I mean, they're just kind of rowdy guys. They couldn't kill Saul and fight against him. So now, ha, now they got somebody to fight against. But if you're like me, you're kind of going, well, wait a minute, David. We saw last week when Rod taught the passage before how David had an opportunity to kill Saul. Remember, he's hiding in the cave with his men. Saul comes in to relieve himself. The men are saying, David, now's your chance. Kill him. He's been chasing you. He's a bad guy. Kill him. And David says, no, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. But now David's attitude is very different, isn't it? What's happened to David? What's changed? Well, I think David is just fed up. Samuel's died, as we saw at the beginning. He's just fed up with running in the wilderness. Yeah, he's not going to touch the Lord's anointed, but here's a guy who deserves to die anyway. Nabal's a fool. He rejects God. And I think David is just frustrated, and now he wants to take all his frustration out on this one man, Nabal, and on his entire household. One of the things we love about David is he's a man of passion. That's why we have such incredible psalms that he wrote. They're passionate. They appeal to the heart. They're wonderful. But when we let our passion take control and we don't submit it to the Lord, that's when we get into trouble. And that's what's happening to David. And essentially, he's becoming a Nabal or a Saul, living as though God doesn't exist. And he's saying, I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm mad at Nabal. I'm going to wipe out his entire household. That's it. I'm done. And all he can see, he's leaving God totally out of it, right? All he can see is, I'm angry, and I'm going to let my anger take control. You know how good it feels sometimes to just give in to sinful passions? There's part of us that just wants to do that, and sometimes we do, don't we? But it's deadly, and it's deadly in David's life. He's walked away from God at this moment. He's shutting out God and truth and all that God has done, and all he can see is Nabal. And this is just a warning to all of us, a reminder to all of us. The flesh is always with us. It doesn't matter how well we know God or how much he's used us in ministry or anything else. We need him every second, and we need to keep submitting our passions, our anger, our hurts, our rejections to him. Keep giving it to him, because otherwise we can end up doing terrible things. We're capable in our flesh of anything. Perseverance is hard. But we can never trust ourself. We need to keep clinging to him. So David's taking his frustration out on Saul, or frustration with Saul out on this evil man, Nabal. You think, how can I be capable of such awful things like David is? How could he be capable? Well, some of you at the women's conference a couple of years ago, Carol Kent came. She talked about her family. And she wrote a book called I Lay My Isaac Down. It's a powerful book about her 
own son who graduated from the Naval Academy, godly man, walked with God, knew Jesus, trusted him, had ministry, married a woman who had two children already and in a fit of rage killed her ex-husband, murdered him. Now he's spending his life, the rest of his life in jail. And she wrestled with, how could a godly man do this? How could my son do this kind of thing? But see, we're all capable of that, folks. We need Jesus every minute. We need to trust him and walk with him and rest in him. So David's on a course. He's going to go shed blood. He's had it. He's mad. But God intervenes in a, in a wonderful way. Verse 14 through 17. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. And he goes on to say, Hey, they took care of us in the wilderness. They blessed us. They were wonderful to us, David's men. And they came to our master, to Nabal, and he rejected them completely. And he ends this way. Verse 17. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Here's a servant who even knows Nabal's reputation very well. He says, look, no one can talk to this guy. He's the son of Belial, literally, which just means he's an evil man deep inside in his heart. No one can talk to him. He's completely unresponsive. And he's just honest about who his own master is. But what I love about it is he comes to Abigail, this young man, and says, hey, here's what's going on. David's upset. And here's the facts. Please do something. You see, he knows that Abigail is trustworthy. He knows that Abigail is wise. And so he leaves it in her hands and says, you'll know what to do. Please do something to take care of this situation. He trusts in her wisdom. So David's in trouble, but now Abigail begins to move towards David to give him a way of escape from his sin. And you know that verse in 1 Corinthians 10:13. Let me read it to you. Many of you have memorized it. It's a reminder to us that God always provides a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10:13 God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it God always provides a way of escape when you've begun to give in to the flesh to your sinful passions God always provides a way out if we'll only open our eyes and see it and God's providing David a way out here by sending Abigail. Does he respond to, to it? We'll have to come back next week to see how David responds, by the way. <laughs> so now David gets confronted by Abigail. How does she do it? And what can we learn from her about how to confront? She does it in such a beautiful way. I think it's a wonderful example and model for us of how we can approach someone else that is struggling, is trapped in sin, is caught in sinful passions. Sometimes we need to move alongside one another. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
And sometimes we need to be a friend to someone else and wound them, remind them of truth, come alongside them, like Abigail does here. But she's not even a friend. She doesn't even know David, and yet God leads her to step in and confront him about the direction he's going. It's an amazing, amazing woman we see here in Abigail. And this speech actually is the longest speech by a woman in the Old Testament. And there's such wisdom in it. So let's talk about how a godly person confronts. What can we learn from how she does it? Well, first of all, what I see in the first few verses is that she sets the proper environment. When you're going to confront somebody, it's important you set the proper environment. Verse 18. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young man, Go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. He would have stopped the whole thing for sure. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I've guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to to him. Just a little footnote. I love the grittiness of Scripture. Scripture doesn't hold back. The, the word for male here, it's one who urinates against the wall. <laughs> it's true. It's a Hebrew idiom. This is what a man is because, yeah, that's men urinate against the wall. So he says, I'm going to kill every one of those men, I'm going to wipe them out. But I love the way Abigail approaches him. First of all, she sends a whole lot of food. Right? Pretty smart. As they say, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. (laughs) She knows that. She's wise. She sends a lot of food. She knows he's hungry. She doesn't send just water. She sends wine. You know, she sends all these gifts to him. And then it's interesting, it says she came around the secret place and met him. I see that they met probably in a steep canyon. There was no way for David to avoid her. (laughs) He couldn't get away from her. There's great wisdom in how she sets up the situation to confront him. The environment is really important, folks, in how you approach someone. I think often we think, okay, I need to approach this person about some sin in their life or some, something I see in their lives, but we do it at the wrong time. We, we don't set up the situation. We don't make every opportunity for them to really hear us. So, man and his wife both come home from work. They're tired, and one's been stewing about something all day, and they kind of blast the other person just as they walk in the door. That's not good. <laughs> It doesn't set it up for the person to really hear you. You have to create a nice situation, take the person out to dinner or do something where you've got time to sit down together and work this through together to talk it through. She's very wise, Abigail, in how she sets up the proper environment. And then secondly, I love her attitude. 
because her attitude is one of complete humility. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. She goes on and on. It's, it's really interesting. It, it, it says three times that she fell before him. She bowed before him. She humbled herself before him in a very real, practical, physical way. And then in her speech, 14 times she calls him my Lord. Six times she calls herself your maidservant. You see, she's doing everything she can to put herself in a position of essentially being beneath him, underneath him, coming underneath to lift him up. I think too often when we try to confront somebody, what our attitude is, you did me wrong, you blew it, you're a sinner, and I'm your judge. I'm sitting on my throne above you. And we think people are going to listen to that? No. We can always come with an attitude of, hey, look, I'm a sinner too. I've got fault. I, I, I'm not putting myself above you. You know, I'm just like you. But here's something I think the Lord would have you consider. If we come with a humility that's not judgmental and not pointing fingers and not placing us above them, it's much more likely that they are going to hear what we have to say. And notice her very first line. On me be the blame. Now, is it her fault what Nabal did? Not really, but she takes the blame. She's willing to take the blame for this man, her husband, who does not deserve it. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Who else took the blame for us when we didn't deserve it? Jesus did. And she's representing Jesus here to David and in front of her own husband or for her own husband, taking the blame for a man who doesn't deserve it. And then third, what she does, what I see in how she confronts is she is completely honest about reality. She admits reality. Verse 25. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. This son of Belial. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not yet, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now, that sounds pretty disrespectful, doesn't it, to her husband? It sounds that way, but think about what she's doing. She's coming to David to plead for her own husband's life. She's not disrespecting Nabal. In fact, she's saving his life. But what I appreciate about what she's saying to David is she doesn't pretend like things are better than they are in her marriage. <laughs> she doesn't feel like, oh, if I'm going to be a godly woman, I've got to just ignore what my husband is and ignore what he's really like and just pretend like things are okay. Because that's what loving him is. No, he doesn't. She doesn't do that. He says, no, this is the reality of what I have to deal with. But you know what? 
I'm pleading for his life. Don't, don't pay attention to him. Don't let him make you do a bad thing, David. It's really a very respectful thing, I think she does here, in admitting reality. You see, if we, in our relationships, in our difficult relationships, try to pretend or ignore or deny the reality of the situation, you can't heal. You can't get better. She doesn't do that. She admits reality. She's honest about what's really going on. And then in verse 26 and 27, she reminds David of the Lord's work in his life. You see, she helps him get his eyes off Nabal to the Lord and brings the Lord into it. Verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Let me stop there for a sec. What's she referring to? That God has restrained David from shedding blood. I think she knows about Saul in the last chapter. How God restrained David from shedding blood and doing something he would regret later. And so she says, look how God's worked in your life and helped you to handle these kind of difficult situations before, David. Don't blow it this time. But remember the Lord, that he is active in this. He's involved in what's going on. And then finally, in her speech, I think she helps David. She confronts by pointing out the consequences of his choices. Listen to verse 28 through 31. Beautiful way she puts it here. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, and the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. I think... She's reminding David of how he killed Goliath with a sling. David, trust the Lord like you did then. (laughs) And he goes on, she goes on to describe how his life is bound up in the bundle of the Lord. She describes that, this picture of this bundle. It's, you know, when you travel, you keep a, I have a passport pouch I keep around my waist and that's where I keep my valuables. And it's that picture of, David, you are bound up with the life of God. He's got you bound around his waist. Don't blow that by doing this terrible thing to someone who doesn't doesn't need it. Don't waste your time on him. So she goes on to talk about the consequences of what he'll do, that if if you do what's right, this won't cause grief or a troubled heart. Verse 31, to my Lord both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. So she says in a a masterly way, David, think about life if you don't do this thing. If you don't kill Nabal, you'll have a clean conscience. You'll be staying close to the Lord. Things will go much better for you. So you don't really want to do this, do you? I love the way she brings the Lord into his thinking and reminds him of what the Lord has done in the past and what life will be like with the Lord in the future if he does what is right. So that now David really is dealing not with her, but with the Lord. 
That's brilliant. If you're ever going to confront somebody, make sure the issue becomes not between you and the person, but between the Lord and the person, so that the Lord is the one they have to deal with. Brilliant, brilliant way she confronts. She's in touch with the Lord and does wonderful things by how she responds. So what do we learn? Here's a woman who could be really bitter. She's in a horrible marriage. But instead, she's caught up in something bigger. The kingdom of God. What God is doing way beyond her marriage in David's life and in the nation of Israel. And so she's able to continue to do what's right and be a powerful woman of influence. I'm so proud of another number of women and men here who are in difficult relationships, who have persevered, continued to walk with the Lord and love Him, even when it's hard. And I've learned so much from you. I just encourage you and for all of us to persevere, to stay close to the Lord. Be an Abigail in whatever situation you're in. And don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give in to your passions to flee or to do harm to the other person. And let me say this. Sometimes God will lead a person in a difficult relationship to separate. But please don't do it just to get away. Please don't do it apart from the Lord. Please don't do it without the help of your church family to help you walk through it so that you can stay close to the Lord in the midst of it if that becomes necessary. Sometimes it does. So what's the lesson of Abigail? Let a difficult relationship or situation drive you to a deeper dependence on the Lord, to trust Him more. Keep your eyes on the bigger picture of what God is doing so you can grow in beauty both inwardly and outwardly so you can be a man or a woman of influence who is truly caught up in the greater purposes of God. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful picture Abigail is for us. What a model. May we learn from her. May we keep her in mind as we face difficult relationships. And most of all, may we keep our eyes on you and trust, Lord, that you can be our strength. You can help us keep walking with you. We can live in godliness when we walk with you through those situations. Help us be Abigails, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.